voice. We all have one. It's one of the central means by which we share ourselves with others. But is every voice unique, like a sort of audio fingerprint? If so, how do we find that? Or do we create it? Does who we are define our voice? Or does our voice end up defining something about who we become? And what does it mean for an artist to find their voice? This is Mixed Media, a podcast by Kavi Gupta. My name is Philip Barcio, and this is my voice. On this episode, we delve into the mystery of voice with the help of Atlanta-based visual artist Michi Miko. Michi's latest exhibition, Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground, expresses the thoughts and experiences Michi had during his frequent camping and fishing trips deep into the Georgia woods during the COVID-19 pandemic. One painting features a gaudy ceiling light affixed to its surface, like a beacon of domesticity in the wild. Another utilizes the scraped scales of a crappy fish as an artistic medium and rests upon jars of corn grits sourced from an area where Michi likes to camp. That painting's title? Crappy painting. Render an apocalypse. A life for a life. How to kill a fish. The central sculpture in the show offers a darkly humorous vision of the hiker's burden. It's a table wearing hiking shoes, piled high with rope-bound bags, fishing lines, and buoys, and dragging a set of rusted cast-iron pans. For the exhibition, Michi's voice didn't just manifest in paintings and sculptures, it also manifested in nature photographs, field notes, and sketches which were compiled and published by Kavi Gupta Editions into the limited edition book Michi Miko Black Navigation. How do all of these elements fit together to define what we think of as Michi's voice? Michi stopped by our studio in the Kavi Gupta bookshop to talk about that and more with Kijo Lee, Associate Curator of American Art at the Cleveland Museum of Art. Here's Michi and Kijo. Hey Michi. Hey, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. I wanted to talk a bit about voice. Like for me, when I think of artist voice, it just pings so many things. Like it's the literal timber. So for me, I love listening listening to you speak. So it's the actual voice, but it's also the vocabulary, the artistic vocabulary. So how you create what you create, that combination. And I was hoping that you might wanna talk a bit about what artist voice means for you in general, and then what it might mean to you and your, your practice specifically, specifically your own aesthetic practice. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, Please do. I, um, like in the, in the beginning, I, I didn't know what, what my voice would be like, or what it was, or or what it meant to have an artistic voice. Mm-hmm. So what I would do was watch Art 21. <laughs> and since I was an MC early on, it's like you sort of practice how you perform, right? And mm-hmm. so I would watch Art 21 to sort of listen to how, like these people that I liked, I would listen to how, or even people that I didn't like, just how they communicated about their work, just how they talked about their work. 
And what I began to realize is that everyone had a narrative that was specifically theirs and that no one knew if they were telling the truth or not. You know, it was like, it could be all made up. Like these philosophies are very personal to the artist. And so I would like literally walk around my house, around my studio, constantly having these conversations uh, to myself about this work and sort of sort of practicing hearing myself talk about my work be, because I absolutely hate talking in front of people at times mm. and, and I get really nervous. And, and, uh, and so I wanted a way to sort of deal with that and, and gain that confidence in my language, but then also like not sound like an idiot because I was from the South, right? And, mm -hmm. and so, and so that that meant a lot to me to sort of watch that, and then to realize, like, wait a minute, these people are just making it up. It's it's their philosophies. I don't, I don't care what school you went to or whatever. It's just communicating a, an, an idea effectively. And so when I think about voice, I I kind of start right there and, and think about trying to understand my voice by listening to others or describe their voice, mm -hmm. but. For me personally, I think that my voice is, is one that is natural. I, I think that I take a lot of my cues from my heroes, which are like, you know, people that I'm around and, and like my dad and, and his brothers are great orators, like they're mm -hmm. great storytellers. So I felt that within that, like I could find something that suited me so far as, as the way I spoke about my, about my work, where Whereas I do have the education, I have read a lot, but sometimes that's boring. I'm a strong believer in the tall tale. Of course. And I come from a, a, a long line of men who could tell glorious stories. Mm -hmm. Like my father and his brother were, the, the, they were my Mark Twain's or my big storytellers, larger than life. I can embellish a truth. Beyond belief. <laughs> I believe you. I have the same, but it was women. Historically, my family was very matriarchal. Yeah. But you talk about a tall tale or the culture of dissemblance, right? Yeah. So there's that. There's this way of being able to the flourish. Yeah. That just, the gilding of the lily. There's something really beautiful about that. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, um, I'll tell you one of my dad's stories, right? Please. So my dad... It's, it's him and his brothers. There, there's two of them. There's my Uncle John, my Uncle Albert, and my dad. And they were these three boys and sort of, um, not sort of, they were in segregated Birmingham mm -hmm. during the time of all of the stuff and before. And so I always ask my dad, I said, Dad, like, how in the hell did you guys get away with so much? Mm. He was like, because we weren't, we did, we never looked thrown away, and he's like, I think white people knew we didn't mean no harm, mm. and I was like, there's no way, mm. no, I was like, you're in Birmingham, <laughs> I was like, there has to be something, what was it? Yeah. So he tells me this story, my my uncle John, you got to understand my uncle John, he's a good looking man, curly hair, my skin tone. Like, I look like my dad and his brothers, right? Mm. Just stocky dudes, giant hands. Boom. Mm. 
So these kids are growing up, and they have this idea that they could sell crickets. And they were going to go down to the bait shop, and they were going to sell these silver crickets. There was a junkyard in their neighborhood that they played in. And in this junkyard, there was a stack of cardboards. And under that stack of cardboards, when it would get damp, that's where the crickets would, would be. And so they would gather these crickets, then go to the bait shop and tell the guy at the bait shop that they had these brand new, recently discovered, no one else in town has these African silver crickets. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so they would then proceed to count out crickets to this man. They would anesthetize the cricket, put smoke on them, and they... Yes. And they would count out the tickets. And then my Uncle John was always a fan of giving people more. Mm. And so if the guy wanted 100, he'd give him 150. He'd give him a little extra. Mm-hmm. So that way he'd come, he get, yes. yeah, he'd come back. <laughs> and so boom. And they, they went. The guy bought the crickets. And my dad was like, we told him that he had to put up in the sign, recent on, in the store, recently mm-hmm. discovered African silver crickets. And so, in this story, he goes, Michi, the guy actually put the sign up. And then he goes and asks my Uncle John. He's like, well, hey, Johnny, when can I get some more? He was like, well, I'll have them here tomorrow from Africa. (laughs) (laughs) Overnight Express. (laughs) (laughs) And so my dad said, the one time they were walking away and they had pockets full of chains and Johnny, what did you tell that man? How did we get all this money? He goes, well, Shane, sometimes you have to give a man a little bit more. He was like, I gave him some extra, and he gave me some extra. And they would split the money. And so there's tons of stories of them sort of hustling their way, like this American boy's life. Like these three black boys are having in this sort of turbulent time. But in that turbulent time, there were these three boys who were Mm. thriving Mm. because of their cunning and wit. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, but it seems to me that, you know, there is a distinct kind of freedom that exists in fabulation, that exists in imagination, that exists in the tall tale. There's just, that is itself the embodiment of... Yeah, a lot of my work is influenced by my dad Mm. or my mom. Mm. Like, that is the root cause. Mm. Like, the start. Because I've always wanted my philosophers to be closer to me than, say, a French dude. Yes. And I strongly believe in that. Mm -hmm. Like, what does a French dude way back then and his idea of deconstruction have to do with me? Mm. Mm. When I can see deconstruction. Mm Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. I am it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So It's like Philandis says, um, artists, they make the practice of theory. Like the actual, yeah. they make theory concrete. Yeah. Or make that visible in ways that, to which we can react differently than to, say, whoever Foucault, whomever. And yeah. the ways in which those framings we slip outside of those framings for all the kinds of reasons that we would expect. 
Yeah, I, I would <laughs> rather look locally for my yeah. philosophy. Yeah. Philosophies. Yeah. Not saying that I don't know those. Of course. But I will always just like, yeah. Yeah. But my uncle sounds cool. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's the thing. Turn of phrase comes from my mother, who barely finished high school. My aesthetic sensibility comes from her. She was the smartest person about constructing spaces that completely defied our economic circumstances. Mm. She was like the queen of layaway. Um, whenever we would go away for the summer, we would come back and our entire room would be redecorated so we would feel happy to come home. Oh, wow. We lived in North New Jersey. I thought we were rich. <laughs> because I also wasn't really allowed to go outside. But, <laughs> so, but we had a doorman. There was a yeah. pool in the basement. Wow. Uh, there were ways in which she was able to affect an interior space or have even her own. So she had ways in which she could speak to white folks at her job. And, some, and then her boss would say, well, what did you do to her? Rather than her getting in trouble. So in the same ways that your dad and uncles were getting away with these yeah. seemingly impossible things. My mother, who was deep, dark complected, mm -hmm. but with waist length straight hair, yeah. with my exact face, yeah. was able to navigate those spaces. You know, had, was subject to the paper bag test, so went to work instead of school. And yet was able to have a kind of freedom of her mouth and a freedom yeah. of her being in the world that was undeniable but also came with a different kind of weight. So this push and pull between that fabulousness yeah. and the... Deni not denial necessarily, but negation of maybe the realities that might have attended those stories. Yeah, like, like I don't know what it took to get to that moment. Yeah. Like, right? I'm like, you maybe don't understand what it took for your mom to pull off of all those great At things. All. But I'm glad that you said that because I, I think myself, I had a great American boy life. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I didn't have a broke-down family. I wasn't like, oh, mm. I'm, I'm so poor and broke and all this stuff. I'm like, like the, my dad, like, when I was in high school, he was the president of the city council. Mm. So, like, my dad was a politician, so he, he's got a gift of gab, mm -hmm. like, beyond belief. But one of the challenges I did have in sort of this great life, which a lot of people probably could never deal with, is, is that having to pick up the phone daily with someone threatening your father's life, mm. like how, like these politicians, like people are calling and doing all this stuff and yeah. doing the threats, like that was a part of my daily life. So I grew a thick skin like very early, like my fear of man left pretty fast. Wow. And so, like, someone constantly threatening your father daily, you yeah. you learn to develop, like, this thick skin. And then, so, there's sort of this moment in my life where I begin to look at the world like this, and I just begin to say, like, well, if the world's like this, and people exist like this, and we're all the same, well, that's how I'm going to live my life. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, I'm not mad at anyone. I'm not pissed off at anyone you you are who you are mm -hmm. and, and there's a there's an interview with me and my father and I was like dad thank you for never making me feel inferior to anyone 
So mm-hmm. I've never felt less mm-hmm. than. I don't, I don't even know what the fuck that feels like, mm-hmm. right? Because I've had to have this thick skin. I think that my voice is one where I am searching for what it means in a, in a lot of ways to be a black male in the American South, considering all of its history. And so what does that mean like to be the product of the work ethic, right? Or the, or the struggle that came from like my father's generation, because my dad grew up in Birmingham, like during the civil rights era. And so what does it now mean to be like the descendant of, of that effort? And, and then to even take advantage of that with, with the education and being able to move freely as, as I wish, doing whatever it is. And so I think that my voice in the work is, is, is me searching for what, what that means, like what that sounds like. I, I, think, I think that that's one of the things that, that I'm very interested in when it when it comes to my voice and, and art making. But I mean, there's there's so many things that, that I think about, like even when you say voice is like, is that an, like an, an aesthetic? Like, you know what I mean? Like, what does that mean aesthetically? Mm-hmm. But but just bare bonesing it right now, just mm-hmm. like from the hip, it's like me being very concerned about my position in in the American South and, and what that means overall to, to history and, and like sort of being the product of, or being the example of, of what, what those efforts could be like from my father and his generation. And I appreciate you giving that really straightforward response around sort of the characterizing your voice, but I, I wonder how that how we find that in your work. So how does, how does that express itself materially in your work? So, um, yeah. But I, I think, I think in the, in the work, like I'm, I'm searching for the, even, even in that, like, I, I, I still think about history, but, I, but I also think about the freedom that I have, like when I'm in that studio, when I'm in that, within that space to, to make these works, like at, at my own sort of whim, you know, my whimsical or whatever my philosophical thought is, or if I have an idea, I have the freedom to do that within the work. So I don't have to be pigeon-toed uh, or, or held back with, within those ideas. Like I can fully formulate these ideas and, and sort of chase them. And, and that too, I, I think, is still a product of, of that, that sort of freedom. But then me also thinking about hip hop culture and punk rock, Mm-hmm. culture and then just sort of trying my best to rebel against the system because I have for so long like I've existed outside of the system so so and even outside of the narrative like I'm I've, I've always thought that I would I would be some sort of cult hero like someone would come find me like like an old blues player like there were these people in the south making this badass art and and I just happened to be one of them. And then, you know, they would discover it. And then like, oh, wow, this guy's been a genius, you know, but, but that operation outside of has, has given me and my voice this freedom to, to sort of exist, to, to be whoever it is that I want to be as an artist, to say whatever it is I want to say as an artist, where, whether like, I choose to do the abstractions or blend the abstractions within the landscape and then 
still make fun of myself for thinking about being a landscape painter, you know what I mean? <laughs> and then, uh, but, but I think that this sort of isolation has given my voice the strength and the confidence to just say and do what it is that I feel. Yeah, and I wondered maybe if we could talk a little bit about how, where humor finds itself in your work. We also haven't talked any about your sculptures. And so I'm interested, A, in the role of humor, because when I think about artistic voice, you're funny as shit. And so I think about <laughs> that, I think about the ways in which artists play with us. So, yeah, totally. so when I think, I, I wondered if you might talk a little bit about humor. Okay, I, th I think the humor, I'm just a silly man. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like. Over the pandemic, I was obsessed with surf videos. Mm. And I realized I didn't keep a promise to myself that I would learn to surf. So I began to think about that. And then I began to think about owning a surf shop in Atlanta mm -hmm. where there's no water. <laughs> so I instantly went and bought Atlanta Surf Shop. And so I had hoped to maybe do a project where I could be the only black surf shop owner in America, maybe. Yeah. And then I be then began to realize, like through my hilariousness, that <laughs> Atlanta Surf Shop spells ass. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And so Atlanta being the strip club capital, I was like, Perfect. oh, there's always been like sex wax and all this yes. wax. And I was like, man, I could come out with this a surfboard wax that's called ass wax. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I was like starting to make these branding things about mm. ass wax and all those things. Like there's a there's a part of me like outside of art that that loves a great joke, mm -hmm. and I I love a practical joke. Like I'll watch those on YouTube. I, there's something very funny about laughter, like are very important about laughter. But then there's something very funny about being the trickster, mm -hmm. and then and then knowing that you're playing the role of of a trickster, but. Then there's a moment, like there's a seriousness within the humor or there's something that I'm trying to get out of the viewer. Mm -hmm. Like like in this show, like take for instance, um, the work with the cuckabugs. Yes. <laughs> the reason that those exist is because I wanted that language on on the note card or on the on the art card. Yes. Like I wanted a vast majority of white America to read this word cuckabug. And we have this experience with the cuckabug, which is, you know, this thing that's down by the river. It's like a thorn. Yeah. But then in black culture, cuckabug then becomes the naps on the back of your head. Yes. And yeah. so it gets to have a double meaning depending on who you are and, and, and the reading of the card. Yes. And then when you look at that work, on the on the painting that's such a flat painting mm -hmm. that these things have a, um, a relief but then when the light hits them right and there's the shadow on the little pom-pom they absolutely look like little naps yes and so for me that's like a ha -ha. 
like I'm being funny, I'm being cute, but I'm also smart because this is a very real thing. So I think sometimes yeah. the humor is me just trying to prove just how smart I am without saying it. Yes. And yeah. if Dave Chappelle's a genius, then like I'd like to attempt to have some humor in art too. You mm. know what I mean? So, but I also think that that gives people a way to get into the work, to 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 approach the work. But usually the jokes start out as my own mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I, I I often ask myself like, what if? Like, or if I, or can I, or should I? What happens when I, you know what I mean? Even mm-hmm. even um, the fish and grits. Mm-hmm. Like, that, like, like to think about work and then have it to hang in this white space and it be the gallery and the gallery has this sort of idea of what we we have this idea of what the gallery space is it is this sort of clean pristine place yes. and then when the when the work moves out of the grimy studio it becomes this thing you know what i mean yes. and so it, it becomes elevated right mm-hmm. and so i was like well how can i keep the grit and the grime mm. but also like Tell something that's very true, that has a historical context, mm-hmm. but then has a humor in there as well. And then it's like, well, then are these materials that artists have used before? And yeah. then that's where the joke comes in. It's like, well, you may have used bronze and you may have used this, but you motherfuckers ain't never used fish scales and grits. Yes, and yes. So those kind of gestures then become like my own personal jokes, but then just sort of me thumbing my nose or shooting the bird at artists being like, ha ha, you didn't think of this. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. also thinking about like a, a plate of fish and grits is very expensive, but it's something that, that, that can be had very cheaply. And then grits are also a great travel meal for when I'm out camping and then I'm catching fish. Mm-hmm. So I can have fish and grits whenever I want. And then to, to elevate the painting and sit them on the grits as sort yes. of this anchor or this thing, this symbol, I think then becomes very hilarious to me. Like just because I don't know why artists put their paintings on gallons of paint and foam and all mm. these things because don't know that I treat my paintings as precious as that um, be, be, because I, I like to think that they're built tough, right? Which is one of the things I, I also laugh about. It's like, oh, it can fall. I don't care. It's built tough because I overthink the building. Like if that sculpture within the within the show was pushed over, I, it wouldn't fall apart mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because I've overbuilt it, you know? And like, that's one of the things like, I think also becomes hilarious too is that in the future someone with white gloves will hang that work in a in a museum and in like the tag will always read the same like fish and grits you know what i mean like yes yes yes. someone will be treating this thing like so precious and like and for me that to think about like long after I'm gone, there's still this joke that someone's got to handle like one of my skillets, like very delicate. Yes, yes. I'm thinking the 60 word label for kookaburgs. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, like there's a 60 word limit for chat labels in museums. How are we yeah. going to, you know, and how we allow that inside joke to remain inside, which allows it to remain funny. Yeah. And I, I, I it's, oh man, you see, so you get it, man. Like, like, <laughs> like it's hard to get things over on you. So, like, so, so I don't know if I can pull a joke on you, but. I'm gonna try, and if yes. if I can get it on the label, or if or if I can slide one in, like I'll I'll definitely do it. And yeah. if if it makes sense, like for me, material-wise, if it makes sense for me, like history-wise, yeah. and if it makes sense culturally, to what I'm doing and what I'm trying to communicate, then yeah, I'll I'll make that joke. But believe it's a very serious gesture, because um. I don't know what'll come out of the fish scales and, and the fish slime and, and blending grits, but I do know one thing, no other artist is doing it. And so whatever, I, I, I get it. Mm -hmm. yeah, I find myself funny. My dad used to always say, you never laugh at your own stuff, but I do, you can't help it sometimes because sometimes you're really funny to yourself. Yeah, well, I, I think as artists, if we're not laughing at ourselves, then we're doing it wrong. You're absolutely That's doing true. it wrong. Like, I am just a, a, a grown-up with a coloring box, a very yeah. advanced coloring box. That is it. We are the adults who were allowed to continue to have coloring boxes and, and grow them. That's Agreed. simply it. Yeah. And then you form these ideas, and you have these great philosophical thoughts, and then you apply those to a canvas or paper or whatever your medium is, but you're still just a person with a coloring box. You're you're in a you're a grown child, and so if you don't think about it like that, that you're super blessed and we're super fortunate to be within creative fields, like you're doing it absolutely wrong. If you don't walk around that museum sometimes and you just like, holy shit, like I get paid to do this, <laughs> like seriously, the day that my first exhibition opened at the museum i was like oh so these things these thoughts have been rattling around in my head these these moments in which when i was writing my dissertation prospectus during thanksgiving and my sister sent handed me a cutting board an onion and a knife and i looked at her and said but what does it mean and she said chop it idiot so because i was in the ether so like, i was somewhere thinking about i just looked at her so yes, there are ways in which it is a kind of magic yeah. that happens. And there are inside jokes. So I get to invest in those galleries, those same kinds of underpinnings that only I know. Like I, I, only I know that this artist was actually thinking about this particular thing. It doesn't fit on the label, but somebody might actually divine it because they're sitting next to each other. And that's enough for me, for there to get that little bit of friction, that little bit of frisson from the juxtaposition that matters more to me than can they recount the date and, and, and stylistic period of the artwork. Yeah, there are several jokes on the sculpture, but they're mm -hmm. very serious. Like yeah. one I will say is that when you look at that sculpture, everyone says it's just a pile of stuff, but you, it's like, yeah, it is. It's our baggage. It's my baggage. Yeah. Which I think is is hilarious that I made a sculpture on a table and then I tried to then sort of personify a table by putting boots on it. Like yeah. that in itself is hilarious to me. But then 
that gesture alone is hilarious. But then it's very serious once you see like, oh, he's pulling these like cast irons. But then on the top of that sculpture, there's a bag that says Urban Outfitters, you know, which is, yeah. <laughs> which is, I think is, is hilarious to me. It's just like, yeah, I'm a cannibal. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I've been really meditating on the idea of fugitivity um, mm -hmm. or Moton's use of it, which you uh, reference yeah. often. And, and, you know, that kind of fugitive movement or stolen life yeah. um, that occurs in out in the wilderness yeah. um, or this idea of absconding with yourself, um, of becoming the kind of contraband <laughs> that our forebears were forebears were labeled with, right? Mm -hmm. the, the the absurdity of the notion of having to steal oneself yes. away um, seems really a generative part of what of what happens for you out there. Let's know, like Fred, he's he's like a like these dudes are deep, you know. What I mean? Oh my gosh, incredibly so. Yes, yeah, and and they're wicked smart. Yes, and, and so. I kind of like, I like, kind of want to just skim the epidermis, you know, like mm -hmm. I don't want to go too deep. I want to go deep in the skin, right? Mm -hmm. And so I just want to take what I need mm -hmm. so that I don't mess up like what's naturally there. Mm -hmm. So, so, so that's sort of been my approach to this idea of fugitivity. Like I've, I've gotten enough okay. to where I don't need to write a paper on it. Of course. But there's, but there's still room for Michi's insight. Mm -hmm. But just that little bit of influence, and so for me, so tell me about like that that running or that fugitivity is is me sort of thinking also about that jailhouse pose mm -hmm. or being mm -hmm. actual fugitive, mm -hmm. but then also what that freedom looks like from that pose, but then having to do that pose to set up a camp or to just exist in a camp mm -hmm. and then to have to look through. Mm or to look out on and then sort of reflect mentally of, am I free right now? Is this the freest mm. I'm going to be? Mm. Is this it? Mm. And then, of course, yeah, like, I'm in a moment. Yes. But also sensing the full nature of that moment in so many directions yeah. simultaneously. But, but even thinking about it, like, what must it have been like to run towards a freedom mm -hmm. in an unknown? Mm-hmm. And I have the best gear that money can buy at the moment. And then here were these, like, my forefathers sort of running towards this moment. Yes. Or this freedom through these same woods in this same type of environment, in this same darkness, with this same stars, the same skies, the same light from millions of years. Yes. But into this unknown. Mm -hmm. even, even though I have a charted path there's a there's a worn path there's all the google maps there's still an unknown so what must it have been like to truly be in that unknown mm -hmm. to truly be that fugitive absolutely the incredible sense of not only the unknown but the unknowability which mm -hmm. may still attend right like yeah which may still attend you even with all of your gear and maps and everything right there's still the ways in which nature as you say is indifferent doesn't, doesn't give a shit. Doesn't care. Um, and and it has just these, kicked my ass. Yeah, I yeah, speak. yeah. And I always think about that. I think about the agency of nature that is completely up against, outside of 
what we think of as human agency, this kind of subjectivity that has this particular kind of volition. It's a whole different realm, but it is still agency that you then have to encounter. Mm -hmm. And so what sent you outside? I, I, I don't know. Mm. There's just an urge to run. Mm -hmm. And like, if the pandemic was my opportunity, I was going to seize it. And mm -hmm. once I started running, I couldn't stop. Mm -hmm. And then the freedom became in the running, right? Mm -hmm. And my mm -hmm. running became like my car, which is a, a Volvo V60, which is my dream car. I drive my dream car. So my dream car was like my spaceship. It was like my bubble. Mm -hmm. So if we were supposed to be um, quarantined and all that stuff. Yes. So if, if I could hop in my bubble, which is my spaceship, which is the Volvo, which is Black Betty, mm -hmm. which is named after my cat, which <laughs> is a black cat because yes. blues songs have black cats and you need black cat bones. Yes. And so I followed this whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would hop into Betty and, and we would just run. Mm-hmm. And that was my spaceship that could take me anywhere. And so I begin to imagine myself also as like an explorer. I see. And one who was traveling new lands. Mm -hmm. and, and I could discover these places all on my own. And I could put my flags there or leave my marks there. And the world seemed like it was mine because so many people were home. Yes. Yes. So in that emptiness, I got super excited about like... Well, maybe I am Matthew Henson right now. Mm -hmm. I am my best Matthew Henson right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And as a kid, I've there's an image. I think we talked about this. We did. This we did. The in, image uh, with the fur and the white yeah. and that. Yes, yeah, Matt, Matt Henson. That, yes. That before, <laughs> yes. So it's me still. Yes. So now you know that that's not a lie. It's, mm -hmm. it's me running towards this image. Mm-hmm of this first explorer of Matthew mm -hmm. Henson. Mm -hmm. That's it. It's yeah. really that simple. But, I don't know, I think I just got addicted to, to, to running, mm. to trying to chase the fish, to, to smelling the smoke, to hearing the woods, to waking up, to not sleeping because you heard a sound. Yes. Whatever the psychological things were, I wanted more of it. Because I wanted to mm -hmm. figure out why am I also inserting myself into these mountains where yes. I know that it is Tromplandia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because once you leave Atlanta, it becomes Tromplandia. Yeah. And so I wanted to be very visible in that space and not deny myself this moment to have the the. the the or the opportunity to have this transcendent moment. Yes. But also, like part of that insurance policy is is a big forty four special. And right. I won't lie about that. Right. Absolutely. But it also maybe, and you tell me, it feels like you were creating that of your relationship with that land. So you have to respond. So carrying the forty four special is. Be having the capacity to respond to whatever that sort of social structure might be that's, that would want to overlay that yeah. natural space. But Which then it becomes just part of the environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I was out in a, in, a, in a creek fishing. Truck went by, boom, like, okay, it's just one truck. It's this color. But the truck quickly came back. 
and I could mm-hmm. hear it coming back. And so I just turned the 44 to on, my, on my fishing side. Got it. And those dudes just waved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so that sort of force equalizer, that, that thing, like also, even though I don't write about it, mm-hmm. I don't know, there's no photos or right, anything. Right. It's just this thing. Shango is what I call it because it's God of Thunder, but <laughs> but or like a kind of subtext. Yeah, a... there there's an insurance policy <laughs> mm-hmm. there that I think I don't talk about, but it's absolutely real. I don't think, of course, every viewer would feel that subtext would necessarily <laughs> make or make or have that kind of understanding. But the way that you're describing it as being a part of the environment, not yeah. something that you transcend, which is may have been what I was suggesting previously, but it is actually... The transcend is, is the hope. Mm. That is the hope for me, that mm-hmm. I can transcend, mm. like I can have the moment. Or I can go out there and just be, mm-hmm. you know, and not have Shango, you know what I mean? Yes. Where I am one with all of it. Mm-hmm. But that mm. moment hasn't come yet, right? <clears throat> and so, and, and life is real. Mm-hmm. like there's you see the beautiful photos like when you look at the book there's yes. beautiful photos yes but you don't see the struggle it takes to get to that damn photo yes or the mental preparedness that it takes to just put the stuff in the car decide to go watch Atlanta fade watch the mountains grow watch the rebel flags appear there's a whole shop that I pass along the and so there are those notions that like okay yeah I'm going into this place mm-hmm, why are you doing mm-hmm. that it's like because I want to see the yeah. you know you want to have the idyllic thing right right but that that's why I think that makes like Instagram sort of interesting what makes yes. like this book sort of interesting is like you don't see the absolute bullshit that I have to fight through to get my ass up to go do this thing that mm. I want to go do. It takes a lot of mental effort. In some ways, do you connect that? Or in my mind, it's connecting to the laboriousness of the process of creating your work, right? All of that thing, everything that becomes sort of invisible, to mm. me, becomes visible because of the intense layering, the multi-perspectival line-making, the ways in which it is both a seascape and the galaxy, <laughs> the ways in which it is both I see figures and these abstractions, it's the ways in which it's both a direct view and a, a sky view happening at the same time in... On a, on a singular plane, which messes them with our brain. It, it connects to what I have described recently as perceptual drift. The demand, the demand that a work can make on the human body, which makes visible that intangible agency of the object mm-hmm. in the way that it forces. I can't stand still in front of one of your paintings. It tells me I can't. It tells me I understand nothing from a single stance. And so there's a way in which that seems to me to connect to this idea of the things that become subtext in the book. Mm-hmm. And if you let yourself 
could become your experience of that painting if you decide that you're not going to meet the demand of the artwork. That artwork, if you decide that artworks only give, that they only present, yeah. and disallow the ways in which it is saying to you, no, you got to get in this if you want to know anything, and there will be many things you cannot know. That explanation is exactly, in a lot of ways, what I'm trying to do mm-hmm. to the work. I'm trying to have a bunch of different perspectives all at once. Like, this thing reads flat. It reads far. It reads close. It, like, there's a lot of different reads that I'm trying to happen. So you feel that feeling that you felt. Yes. I won't say anything else because mm. you sort of cracked the code on what's in here in Ooh, my brain. Right, Keisha. <laughs> I think just to sort of round things out, I just wanted to ask so, thinking about humor, making, this I, these ideas that we've been discussing around how you make, um, around how humor fits in and this humor, seriousness, and to my mind, dissemblance, the ways in which you're playing with uh, revelation and concealment, mm-hmm. how those things might fit into the book. Like when we are alone, like mm-hmm. that, that's what you have to understand about like some of these notes, like I was really sort of hesitant about them um, I, I didn't know if they were too harsh or if they were too cynical or condescending or, you know, just too assholeish or whatever. I don't know. But then I was like, well, this is my true voice. This is what I wrote. So I was feeling it. And so I just sort of sent it, sent it over to Alex and, and, and Philip and just let them pick and choose like what they felt needed to go in the book. And then there were a couple where I felt that like these have to be in there to sort of round out some of my thoughts. But I think that that humor sometimes, like one of the, in the sketchbook, I think that like the 2021 when, when or 2020 when, when black people discovered um, plants, like, <laughs> like that's just looking at, you know, we're in a pandemic and, and we're looking at social media, you, you know, your thumb scrolling and then here's this giant movement of, of black people like getting plants, like it's this yes. new shit, you know what I mean? And I'm like, like you guys didn't have plants before? Like, right. what's in your house? I was like, exactly. this, this is not a great Matthew Henson moment. Like, this is not a black movement. This is not a history thing. And so sort of looking at the plants around my house or like even I've, I've tried to keep plants alive in my studio, mm-hmm. which is how I discovered that I paint best in the dark and mm-hmm. because I paint from a grow light. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that to me sort of became funny. And, and so I w- I w- I'll write these things down or, or just so that I can remember them and just so I can think about like, could I make a piece around this? Yeah. And, and then some of the writings, when you get to the part in, in the writings book, I think that there are very serious lines in there or things I was thinking about. But then there's also me sort of poking at culture and or me sort of poking at the moment. Like, um, I think there's one in there that's where it says, um, Karen's calling Karen's Karen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
and then it says niggas die every day, B, and, and it's Cameron yeah. voice. Like yeah. you'll be all right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like exactly. you know, that was at a time when when like all the riots were going on. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is kind of crazy. Now mm -hmm. like Karen is starting to call Karen Karen. Yes. And so I just sort of make a note of that. And then while I'm making that note, the next line does appear which is known to black culture, which is which is from that movie. And, and and then it's gone into hip hop culture. So there's a reference there with with within that sort of ironic statement or 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 me musing about that sort of time in in our culture. And even I think about like I don't know if this one made it, but it was like um like how I was gonna strike out on my own and, and sort of start naming mountaintops and hilltops mm. and call it like Negro Hill or Black Boy Balsam. Mm. And then I think I say something like the creek might rise and take what's yes. theirs. Yes. And then I do a land acknowledgement, but there, there's also a, like my own sort of shout out to the Cherokee, which a lot of these sort of land acknowledgements sort of became like in 2020 on the Zooms. And I found the land acknowledgements like really strange. Like the first time I saw one, I was just like, mm -hmm. is this? Mm -hmm. Because it, the, the first one I saw was for an artist. She was in, uh, God, where was she? Texas or New Orleans or somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I think it was someone who, who had won the Artadia. And it was one of the, one of the only things that I'd watched like during the, the, the pandemic and the lady did a, a land acknowledgement. She did a description of where she was. And it was the first time I was seeing that. And I was just like, well, what is this? And then when she did the land acknowledgement, I was very curious, like, what is this black woman going to say? Yeah. And so I began to think about land acknowledgements from my perspective and, and mm. what, what the hell would I say? Like, would I say, that I'm a stolen man, possibly a stolen man mm -hmm. on stolen land in America. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what would be my judgment? And if I decide to do one, what would it be? And so I just sort of wrote that in the book, just like maybe the creek will rise and take back what's theirs. And, and that comes from that old saying, Lord willing and the creek don't rise, which the creek were their natives and mm -hmm. not the water. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, I absolutely got the whole history on that from my friend uh, uh, Kanupa, who's who's so, so that was kind of a shout out to him, and then yes. but then a shout out to the Cherokee, which is where I go fish, but uh, then also, which is also like all of my jewelry came from the Cherokee reservation. Yeah. Like I'm all the time on the Cherokee reservation, but it's like me sort of sitting there thinking about how would I do a land acknowledgement. So so there's there's all these sort of moments in the book like that I, I think that those like when you look at like the sketchbook and when you look at like the um the writing that's where some of the sort of jokey parts are me poking with humor or me finding humor in um current events or everyday life um that's where they sort of appear like i think there's one even um the mall kiosk alba albatross Yes. What's happening during the riots. And I was like, man, all you brothers just running up to the mall, looting, taking all the fake jewelry. And in the end, it's like all you got is like this big albatross. Yes. 
of this like a blinged out albatross, you know what I mean? And for me, something yeah. about that was like very hilarious. It was like, mm. like I definitely wouldn't go steal jewelry. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, this is my opportunity to take shit. Yeah, like, that, would not, that would not be my priority. Yeah, I'm not taking that little shit, dude. <laughs> like, I want the whole mall. Like, like, you know what I mean? But it's it's just me sort of looking at at where I am, and then current situations or or current events, and then just sort of jotting down things or musing about things from my perspective. And yes. and there there is some humor there, but there's also something very serious there as well. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I appreciate that, and I appreciate the way that you sort of forefront dark humor as being essential yeah. in so many ways. Yeah, I yeah I once wrote a paper about the tech. Now you know I'm a nerd, but the technologies of humor, the different technologies of humor at work in, say, Carol Walker's work versus Ellen Gallagher's. So oh. thinking about the ways in which um, uh, there's a kind of humor that is so dark that it taps into like the stickiest parts of your of your of the funniness that it's it's not laughable. It is it is devastatingly funny. Yeah. And I feel like that's sort of the area that you spend some time in, as well as the levity, but yes, in that devastatingly funny area. Yeah. Yes. I, I spend a lot of time mm -hmm. there. I don't know why. It's just part of who, who I am. And, 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 but I think it's also, too, it's like that voice that, that, that I've sort of been searching for or trying to find like by going on these trips and spending time trying to create this this idea of leisure being black and leisurely being being the the sort of wild new wild man like what does that look like and what does that sound like and then even in some of my original notes there's a thing a list a list of essentials and I just write one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and seven just says shea butter. You know what I mean? <laughs> there's nothing else there, but it just says shea butter. Yeah. <laughs> because for me, that is very essential. Um, like being in certain environments, like you need that. Like yeah. even out in the woods, I'm like, ooh, I don't want to be ashy. Nobody wants to be ashy, not even in the woods. Exactly. Yeah, a bear might see me and be like, I'm going to eat this ashy. <laughs> Look at those ankles. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna eat him because he's ashy, which is also a thing that like it's it's really funny that all of my camping gear matches, like and and because one I think it's hilarious to have matching camping gear yeah. from a black perspective because we spend a lot of time thinking about aesthetics and matching clothes and. Yes. Like, how does the brother match his car? He has an outfit to drive his car. He matches the paint yes. of the car and the blah. Yes. Like there's a there's an image of uh, Floyd Mayweather, and he's got a one of these big Maybox or whatever it is. It's lime green interior, and he's got on the same lime green shirt. <laughs> and it's so, so there's something like very funny to me about that. And then thinking that okay, if all of my gear looks cool and it matches and I match the gear. 
then a bear definitely won't eat me because it'll be like, this dude is too cool. <laughs> we can't eat this. Yeah, he's too smooth to be eaten today. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, stove matches the tent, the tent matches the pots and pans, the pots and pans, yeah. the bag, the bag, like, matches the boots. And the, you know what I mean? So there's this whole sort of aesthetic um consideration to what it is that i'm doing and then when i absolutely do go through with making a work yeah then trying to use that humor in a historical context that's absolutely true but then like when it comes to the little the gallery card i think that it's it's important to have strange language that exists right there even with the naming the titles and then just like the materials. I, th I think that is very important for it to read like super black. Yeah. And then have a little boom joke, but then like another trick or joke, you may be able to arrange some of those titles and absolutely make a poem if you get them in the mm -hmm, right order. Mm -hmm. so, so there's all these little games that I'll play um, with, the, with the naming of work and then if you can arrange them, maybe it'll tell you a story. Maybe it won't. That's me thinking about Adrian Piper, but yeah. Yeah, that's gorgeous, yeah. <laughs> and it also makes me think about Robin Coase Lewis, right? So the, the other side of her going through museums and collecting titles and then creating this like, these Odyssean poems, right? Yeah. Um, of her treks to the museum. So that, that kind of Janice point, I think is at work in your book. Yeah, so, and so so that's my fun game for curators in the future. Amazing. <laughs> I think with that, I think we could close with a gift for the Tomb Raiders of the future. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Gigi. Thank you, Gigi. You have been listening to Mixed Media, a podcast by Kavi Gupta. Mixed Media is a window opened unexpectedly onto a landscape of ideas, featuring a rotating cast of artists, curators, writers, art collectors, and members of the Kavi Gupta staff, casually discussing the sweetness, mystery, and chaos of great art in front of a microphone. Thank you to our guests Michi Miko and Kijo Lee. Michi is a multidisciplinary artist whose rigorous studio practice is grounded in a material, metaphorical and philosophical examination of what he calls the African-American experience of navigating public spaces while remaining buoyant within them. Michi is the recipient of the Joan Mitchell Foundation grant and the Atlanta Artadia Award and was a finalist for the 2019 Hodgkins Prize. Kijo Lee is Associate Curator of American Art at the Cleveland Museum of Art. An expert in American art history, the history of photography, and African-American studies, she earned her BA in art history at Douglas College and a dual MA in art history and African-American studies from Yale University, where she is currently a PhD candidate. Kavi Gupta amplifies voices of diverse and underrepresented artists to expand the canon of our history. Through innovative and ambitious exhibitions, multimedia programming, and rigorous publications, we foster an evolving conversation among international communities about art and ideas. In addition to hosting more than a dozen major exhibitions each year and participating in vital international art fairs, 
we host Artist Talks, facilitate special programming in support of philanthropic causes, and foster intellectual discourse by regularly bringing artists, curators, and collectors together with academics and experts in the contemporary art field. My name is Zoe Butler. My name is Ramsey Hoy. And my name is Philip Barcio. Thank you for listening to Mixed Media.